So, uh, typically we're in a book of the Bible, we do a series on the book of the Bible, and today and yesterday, we're actually looking at our Bibles. Okay, so where did we get our Bibles, how to read them, and Jason last week um, gave a great outline in terms of how do we read, how do we, because sometimes we pick up our Bibles and we're like, all right, where do I start, how do I read, what's a good way of reading, and so um, Jason did a great job just in terms of how do we study our Bibles. One of the questions, though, is as, as you, who has a paper Bible with them today? Cool. I, I really want to encourage you to, to bring, who has an electronic Bible with them today? Cool. I want to, and, and it doesn't matter, okay? Um, I'm, Jason said uh, paper. <laughs> I, I'm the opposite. I am, um, I'm electronic. And um, I love, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get into it. Right at the end of the message, I'll share a little bit of just how I read my electronic Bible. But um, I th- if you look at the Bible, whatever form you have it in today, there is a, there's a long history of how we got that book, the book that's in your hands, the Bible, God's Word that is in your hands. There's a long, long history, and we're going to look at that today, okay? And, and as we look at it, what I want you, and you know, it's in your phone, in your printed, however, we have some questions. You know, can we trust the Bible we have today? Is this, is this really God's Word? And, and how did it become God's Word? Um, and because that's, that's something that, that folks will say, well, you know, well, I mean, we live by, we are people of the book. We live our lives. I mean, we, c- we do a lot of things based on God's Word. How do we know it's God's Word? And what is the story behind it? How did we get God's Word? And so we're going to be looking at that. Um, and, and I, I, a couple things I want us to notice and, and realize this morning, I think we live in a phenomenally privileged time. We have access to God's Word. We have abundant access to God's Word, okay? Um, it, it hasn't always been that way. Um, there, there, there have been times where, where God's Word has not been accessible to God's people. And um, so we're going to be looking at some of that um, in this timeline. We're going to do a timeline here. But before, before we just go in there, I, I'm just going to state where I'm coming from in terms of God's Word. And first of all, I don't believe it's just a book. It's not just a book. It's not just the pages and the words written. I believe this is God's words to us, inspired by God. And, and I believe this is God speaking to us. And so when I read God's Word... When I read the Bible, that's, what I, that's the framework that I look at it through, okay? Um, it's, it's not like any other piece of literature. Um, Bible Society estimates about 5 billion copies, and this is, it's not that recent. 5 billion copies of the Bible have been printed and sold. And, and that's not taking kind of the last few years into account. That's a lot, okay? You talk about bestseller, you know, if you want to compare it to anything like that, I mean, over all time, five billion copies, okay? But why is God's Word different? And, and I believe it is because it is His Word. It is His story. God's Word, the Bible, um, teaches us and tells us how to interpret um, the greater story of our existence, of creation, of life, of earth, of, of eternity, of time. There's kind of this larger story, and it's God's Word that that teaches us, that shows us where we fit in as, as people, as believers, into God's greater story, into eternity. It speaks about heaven and, and before creation and creation and, and, and who God is. Um, the, other th- the other reason why I, I don't believe that the Bible is just a book is because God has been involved in this. God Himself has been involved in the Bible in Forever, okay? I mean, it starts. I, I love how, how, how John, the, the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And he's speaking about Jesus, but God has been speaking to us through His Word, and that's the incarnate Word, Jesus, as well as His inspired Word. And so, we're going to look just real quick before we get into the timeline um, three things inspiration, God writing the Bible, God inspiring the Bible. So God speaks to people, He speaks to humans, and He says, this is what I want you to write. He, he draws them, He leads them to write these 
verses, these books, these letters, okay? Um, so inspiration, and, and I love 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed. Think of that, God-breathed, and that's where we get the word inspiration, God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But, but we stand, I, I stand on that truth that Scripture is God-breathed. Okay, so it starts with God. Then, Scripture has a long history, and I believe that God has been protecting, but God's been involved, and when we look at history, God's been involved in His Word from inspiration until today, okay? He didn't just kind of put His Word out there and say, all right, guys, have at it. No, He has been involved, intimately involved in it, uh, in preserving His Word, in keeping it true. Um, and we're going to see this as we look at the timeline. I want you to think of, of these men and women who, who give their lives to keep God's Word, God's Word, okay? Um, and I love um, Jesus' promise in Mark chapter 13, verse 31, and it's, it's in Luke as well. It says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is Jesus speaking. My words will never pass away. And I believe God is involved in preserving His Word. So inspiration, protecting it through the ages, but then God is still involved today as we read God's Word in transforming our lives. Okay? And I think we've got to make sure that we never forget that, that when we open this book, God's there. This is God's Word, and He wants us he wants to transform us through His Word. It's not like he, he just set it off and set it in motion and left it. No, He's alive and active today. And, and, I, and I love what Hebrews 4 verse 12 says. It says, For the Word of God, Scripture, is alive and active. So it's not a dead book we open. It's alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And my prayer is that you've experienced that. You've experienced God's Word where you've read Scripture, and just like a double-edged sword, like a razor sharp, going in deep into your heart and really changing the way your heart thinks, the way you think about life, your attitudes, your perspectives, what's true, what's not. My prayer is you've experienced that, and, and, and I know many of you have, and, I, and I'd encourage you to read God's Word humbly, Say, God, would you, would you change me by your word? Okay? So, God's involved in that whole process from inspiration, from getting it written, protecting it through the ages till today, applying it to your life, to my life. Okay? God's involved in all of that. So, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a timeline. Okay? Um, and it's going to be pretty relaxed. Um, bear with me. Hopefully, this all works. But... What we're going to do is, this should be our timeline here. No, it's not magic. It's <laughs> I don't believe in magic. Okay, so this is our timeline. Kind of. All right. Think of this as time, okay? I need to put this down so that I can see the dates on the bottom there. Okay, so, um, and I'm just going to be sticking up. Just different, different periods of time. Okay, so we're right here. So 1400 BC, 1400 before Christ. You guys know how the, you know, before Christ, after Christ. Um, Moses, okay. And, and these are rough dates for Moses, okay. We don't have his time cards and stuff like that. Um, but the Pentateuch, okay. First five books of the Bible are given to Moses. Moses is involved. Did Moses write those first five books? Most likely not. They're probably recorded later, but based on oral tradition that had come down. But pretty accurate in terms of the stories. Okay? Um, just before 1,000 here, right about 1,000 B.C. to 960 B.C., David. And we know, we know who David was, king of Israel. We've got lots of history there. Um, writer of quite a few psalms as well. Okay? So we've got David there. Uh, 500 B.C. My date's right here. 500 B.C. to 400 B.C. Uh, last part of the Old Testament is being written. The latter prophets. Okay? The later prophets. Okay, so just to give you some... And we're going to fill this baby up. Um, okay, so now 
Everything changes. What happens? Jesus. So 0 AD to about 33 AD. Jesus begins his ministry at about 30 AD, about three years of ministry, public ministry at the end there. Um, at this point, a lot of the Old Testament is um, fairly recognized, okay? It's not formally canonized, and we're going to be talking about the canon. This is kind of a lesson for you guys, and hopefully at the end of the... We'll have a good picture of everything that's going on here, but... Um, yeah, Old Testament is, is pretty much recognized at that point. Um, soon after this, we've got um, Paul, Saul, who, who, who uh, writes a lot of the epistles, a lot of the New Testament. Paul, major author in the New Testament, born about five years after Christ, killed about 67, we think. Uh, we spoke about it at the end of Titus there. Remember, Titus is probably his second last book, Second Timothy's last book. He's in prison in Rome. Uh, Rome burns in 67, and Nero goes out and really starts just killing believers, okay? Paul is um, beheaded, Peter is crucified, um, and that's that burning of Rome's in, in 64, okay? So that's kind of just some, some timelines there in terms of, of when stuff was written, okay? Now... Um, Canonization of Scripture, okay. You guys heard about the canon of Scripture? That's the, the books that we have today. That's the canon, okay, the canon of Scripture. So some stage here, somewhere around here, um, between Jesus' time and formally by 250, uh, the canon of Scripture, Old Testament, is recognized, okay? So we've got 39 books of the Old Testament are recognized as inspired Scripture, Okay. How do we get to that? And a lot of that's got to do with Scripture referring to itself. There's this great passage um, in Luke 11, verse 51, where it's speaking about the blood of the prophets. Okay, And Jesus says, the blood of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. Zechariah is one of our latter prophets. And, so, and who's Abel? Okay, so he's talking about the, fir the first blood of Abel, first guy who's killed. To Zechariah, who's killed. Zechariah is, is killed as a prophet. Um, and so Jesus says, the blood of Abel to Zechariah. And so he kind of puts bookmarks. He says, Abel, right there at the beginning. Zechariah, end of the Old Testament. Okay. So he, he, he kind of puts bookmarks right there. Um, now, about 300, 390-something there, we start getting the New Testament canon. Okay. So, remember, the New Testament is written... Uh, most of it's written by about 80, 85 years after Christ, or 85 years A.D. Um, but it's only here in 393, 397 that it's recognized as these are the books of the New Testament. Okay. Um, so you've got the Council of Hippo, you've got the Council of Carthage in 393 and 397, and they recognize the 27 books of the New Testament. Okay. How did that process come about? Um, and, and, and what I'm going to do is just, I'm going to stick this guy right up underneath it in terms of canonization. Oh. So we'll go back. Hopefully, we're not going to lose too many. Um, okay. Moses, you stay. Okay. Canonization. I mean, who decides what's in the Bible, what's not? And so they looked at, at these councils, okay? Large grouping of, of the, the church. Remember, at this stage, it's the Roman Catholic Church in 397, 393. So these guys come together, and they look at um, up to this point, because Scripture has been around, okay? Churches are using various letters, and so they ask the, these questions, essentially four questions. Authorship. Do we know who wrote this letter? And were they either an apostle or an eyewitness? Okay, so firsthand, do they, do they know what they're writing about? Okay. Either an apostle or eyewitness or very close to eyewitness, okay? So, um, and is, so that's the first one in terms of authorship. Then in terms of acceptance, does the early church, like the very early church, the churches that, does it refer, the, does the early church accept this letter as inspired, okay? Are they treating it as inspired or not? Are they treating it as something extra? Because there's a lot of extra letters that go around, but they're not inspired. They're not like God's Word. It's like um, 
all the Christian books we have today, those aren't inspired. Okay? So they, they, are they accepted by the early church as inspired? Then is there consistency in terms of doctrine and teaching? Is it consistent with the rest of Scripture? Okay? Sometimes there's stuff, you know, some guy starts writing early on, and he's just way off because, remember, we've got sects that start pretty, pretty early on. Even at the end of the New Testament writing, you've got sects of guys going out there, writing stuff and saying, hey, Jesus wasn't really God, and, and stuff like that. Okay, so is it consistent there? And then does it reflect the work of the Holy Spirit in terms of inspiration? Can we see God's hand in this writing? Okay, so that's kind of a little bit of the process of canonization. Okay, all right. Um, I'm going to put this one up here. You guys heard about the Apocrypha? Okay. Um, maybe if you came out of a, a, a um, Catholic background, you might have had seven extra books. Okay. In between, and they're intertestamental. So they're between the New and the Old Testament in that period. Um, why don't we have them in our Bibles today? Okay. Number of reasons. Uh, they're not referred to by New Testament authors. Okay. They're not referenced. Um, we read the New Testament. Paul is referencing Luke. These guys are all referencing each other. The books of the Apocrypha are not referenced because they before Jesus. They're not referenced by any of the New Testament writers. No one says, hey, go and look at First and Second Maccabees, which is some of the books in the Apocrypha, um, and, and it, that's just not rec recognized. Okay, uh, The early Jewish community, they weren't using them. They didn't recognize them. Here's a cool one, and we're going to get back to this. They're not included in the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? Remember that word, Dead Sea Scrolls? We're going to come back to it because this is a cool story. Um, so the early guys, uh, Philo and Josephus, and these guys are, are within two, 300 years of the early church. They don't recognize it. They don't quote from it. But what happens is the Apocrypha is accepted into the church at the Council of Trent, okay, which is in 1546, like... Where's 15? 1546 would be over here. They say, hey, we should include these books in our Bible. But before this, no one's been using them. Okay? Well, no one's referring to them as Scripture. They've been around, but they're not referred to as Scripture. And so over here, and for political reasons, over here, and we'll get in, because this, this chunk over here is going to be full and it's messy, okay? <laughs> it's, it's messy, okay? All right, so we're getting a little bit in terms of, so yellow is kind of characters in the Bible, Green canon, so by 397, we have our Bibles as we have them today, okay? It's quite a while ago. All right, now, um, we're going to get into translation, okay? Because this, this gets super interesting. Okay, first translation. What do you guys think? Hmm? Latin, Okay. 382. So even before full canonization, we've got the Latin Vulgate. Um, and so you got, and what's interesting, hopefully this is all going to stick in the long run. Okay. Um, Latin Vulgate is translated by Jerome, single guy doing a translation. Is that a good thing? Never. Okay. Single guy doing a translation. It's commissioned um, by the church to get it into Latin, because that's the language of the church at this time, the, the Roman Catholic Church, Latin. And so, I mean, you can go to some Catholic churches now, and there's still Latin liturgy. Um, and so it's translated into Latin, um, and, and not, a, not a solid translation by any means, okay? Um, I'm going to come here, 635. I'm just going to throw a few of these guys up. Chinese Bible, okay? Um, just, just for interest's sake there, Okay? I'm going to go back. This is uh, another translation that happened, um, and it's actually before Christ, and it's a, the Old Testament is translated from Hebrew into Greek, okay? What was known as the Old Testament at that time, the books that they recognized, uh, and, and so canonization of the Old Testament, remember we said it was a pretty fluid thing. It wasn't a very official thing. Remember, we don't have printing presses or anything like that at this point, Okay? So this is all based on manuscripts. And there's a translation of the Septuagint in about 250 to 280 before Christ. Okay, so that's actually one of the first translations that happened there. Um, I've got a few more here that I'm just going to put up. Um, 
862, you've got the Slovakian, the Russian Bible. Um, a few of those language groups get translated. Um, okay, first English Bible comes along in 1384, which is like right over here. Okay, 1384. You guys heard of John Wycliffe? Okay, so John Wycliffe, um, based on the Vulgate, and the Vulgate, this guy over here, so not based on the original languages, but based on the Latin translation of one guy, Jerome. <coughs> he translates Bible into English, um, and it's handwritten translations, okay? And um, there's a lot of opposition, okay? Because you've got to remember what's happening at this stage is Roman Catholic Church, super, super powerful, and, and the kings and queens of Europe at this stage. And it's so now we're getting into this messy time where Rome's in charge, then the French take over, and so they have, there's a time where there's two popes, there's a French pope and a Rome, Roman a pope from Italy, and they excommunicate each other. Ha, you're not the pope, you're not the pope. And, and, and it's just, it gets messy, okay? Um, but, so Wycliffe goes, guys, we need to, we need to get the Bible into the language of the people, okay, into the heart language. Reading the Bible in Latin and, and, and Jerome's translation, the Vulgate, no one really gets it. And, and, and guys go and look at it now, and it's a pretty poor translation. I mean, we have it. We can go and look at it and compare it to the original manuscripts. But um, original languages. So Wycliffe does a translation, um, and, and there's quite a bit of opposition, okay, because uh, the, the church at that point, um, folks would... <laughs> The Bible is kind of like a revolutionary book, okay? It really is. And so the church is like, we don't want people reading the Bible because they might find out who Jesus is. And they might find out that what we're doing is really, really bad. So um, Wycliffe is killed, and, and a pope, 44 years after Wycliffe is dead, digs up his grave, crushes his bones, and scatters them in a river because he hates him that much because we shouldn't get the Bible out to people, okay? So... Um, you got Wycliffe's followers, and one of them is, is John Huss, okay? Um, pretty awesome, legendary guy. I think this guy was, like, pretty amazing. Um, we're not dropping any. So he, the, the organized church, as we said, is, is opposing the Bible. Um, he's a supporter of Wycliffe, and he stands for Wycliffe's translation and getting the Bible into people's language, heart language. So there's other stuff going on in different countries. We're just going English right now, okay? We're going to leave the Slovakian. And there's a lot of other translations happening. But John Huss is actually burned at the stake, and they use Wycliffe's manuscripts as kindling. Okay. So you've got to just think about it. This is the church burning people at the stake using the handwritten manuscripts. Remember, we're still pre-printing press here, okay? Um, and so, yeah, okay, speaking of printing press, 1450, Gutenberg, okay, the printing press. So this is movable type printing press where you can put different letters in, and um, this changes everything, okay. So now that, man, I'm going to run out of black stuff here. Um, this really does change everything, okay. Printing press really revolutionizes everything. We can now print, instead of just handwriting stuff, we can print, Okay, so, 1496, we got a guy, um, we know some of these, you know, you might have heard some of them, John Collett, um, so the guy's doing translations at this time, academic guys, he's a professor at um, Oxford, he's also the London mayor's son, the London mayor had a lot of power at that point, okay, um, and he does an English translation directly from the Greek, okay, one of the first ones, directly from the Greek, uh, and he starts reading it to his students. And uh, it just, like, the, the readings go viral. <laughs> and people start coming, his students, and there's hundreds of people listening to him reading his English translation of the Bible. Um, and it's translated, again, this is not from the Vulgate, but from Greek, okay? And um, so John Collett, 
He escapes execution because of his privileged position, because of who he is, uh, Oxford professor, son of the, the London mayor, Lord Mayor, um, he escapes execution, okay? A lot of other guys don't. Um, we're going to keep going down here. 1526, you might have heard the name, Tyndale. Um, and, and the first, this is our first, 1526, sorry, Tyndale prints an English Bible. He does a translation, uh, and he translates it from the original languages, from manuscripts that they have, Greek and Hebrew, original language manuscripts. And uh, he prints um, the, the Tyndale English Bible, and you can still, you can go online and look at it. It's hard to read, but you can go and read it, okay? It's printed in English of the time. Okay, now uh, stuff gets really interesting here again. You've got um, King Henry VIII, okay? Um, King Henry, so at this stage, most of England is still with Rome, okay? King Henry has, uh, he has a lover on the side, and he wants the Pope to allow him to marry his mistress and divorce his wife. The Pope says no. So what does King Henry do? He thumbs his nose at the Pope and says, stuff off, we will have our own church. And so that is where the Church of England... The Church of England or the Anglican Church, still around today, that's the start of it right there, okay? So he renounces Catholicism and the Anglican or Church of England is started and he authorizes a Bible translation. You go like, hey, we'll have our own Bible as well, um, but it's a Church of England, so kind of lower Catholic, but still Catholic. Uh, and so Thomas Cranmer, who's Archbishop of Canterbury at that time, um, does a Bible translation. It's called the Great Bible. It's like this massive Bible, and it's printed and distributed amongst all the churches because it's an authorized version of the Bible. Okay, so now this is kind of cool. We're getting Bibles into churches. This is really cool. Um, doesn't last very long. Okay, we've got Mary, um, Bloody Mary. This is her. Okay, goes back to Rome. Bloody Mary goes back to Rome, uh, returns to the Catholic Church. And so um, Cranmer, the guy who was told to do the translation, authorized, he gets burned as well. Um, and Bloody Mary starts burning a lot of people, a lot of Protestants at the stake. This is in England, okay? So you got some Protestants kind of coming up. Remember, we got Reformation, all that happening. And um, so having Bibles in churches takes a back step again, a step backwards, okay? So... Um, at the same time, though, you've got a bunch of Protestants who flee to Geneva. Um, English-speaking Protestants go to Geneva because of uh, Zwingli and all those guys in Geneva. Luther's in here as well. I'll stick him up in a bit. Um, but you've got a translation that starts in English, but in Geneva because of Mary over here. Okay, So she's messing stuff up. They flee to Geneva. And this is the first Bible that has chapters and verses. Okay, so Geneva Bible, chapters and verses, the numbering system is introduced in the Geneva Bible, and that's why it's key. Um, done by Protestants in Geneva. Okay, um, 1611. Where am I for dates? Okay, we've got to keep making it full here. Uh, 1611, King James um, authorizes a Church of England, so small, lower Catholic, authorizes a Church of England um, because, so the Protestants have their English Bibles, okay? But the Church of England that broke off from the Catholic Church, they don't have an English Bible. So King James authorizes, and um, this is kind of the first major translation, and, and they use a lot of the Protestant translations as well as the Vulgate. Um, about 50 scholars, and, and now the Church of England has it's English Bible, and that's the King James that we still have today. King James, 1611. Um, and there's a story of his and her Bibles because somewhere in, oh, he and she Bibles, if you ever hear that, there's a, a few of them were printed where somewhere in Esther it said he instead of she. And those are, they're super collectible. If you find one of those, worth a lot of money. Um, but they printed 1611, so we've got the printing press going, all of that. Um, 1880, I'm definitely going to run out of black stuff. 1880, we've got the English Revised Version, a uh, revision of the King James Version. And um, in 1901, we do the American Standard Version. Okay. 
Now, a couple quick questions here. Um, first Bible printed in America. Anyone know what it was? Okay, it's the Elliot Bible. Do you know that it's not printed in English? It's in one of the um, Indian languages. Okay, um, this guy, Elliot, prints it, and it's in a, in a Native American language. So, just so that you know, I have it here somewhere. Maybe I lost that sheet. But, um, let's put Luther in here. Luther is in 1517, so he's like right, he's there, just so that you can get a, a feel for where Luther is. Okay. Okay, so, 1901, we've got the American Standard Version, which is essentially identical to the English Revised Version, which is based off the King James Version. Okay? So, if you have an American Standard Version, uh, some people still read it, pretty old English, but it's, it's still there. Okay. Monumental thing that happens, Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, there's a shepherd, uh, goes into a cave, finds these jars... And there's stuff in the jars. There's manuscripts, papers, handwritten papers in the jars. Um, and they discover that this stuff's really, really old. Okay? Comes from about right around Jesus' time, probably 50 years after Jesus, somewhere around there. Old Testament. Like the complete Old Testament, except the only thing, the only book that's missing is Esther. Okay? Esther's missing, but it's from the first century around Jesus' time. There's about 800 manuscripts. Not all of them are totally complete, but we're talking 800 manuscripts in bottles in a series of 11 caves. This is the cool thing. It's like a time capsule, okay? Because what's here, now they've got original language manuscripts discovered in 1947. 1947. They date back to here. Of the, and this is Old Testament only, okay? You know what the cool thing is? That process and this process, no major differences. They find a few small differences. But it's like this time capsule that says, yes, what's happened here is the same. Um, it's just preserved. Okay, so Dead Sea Scrolls, super cool. It's like, okay, guys, the process of transferring of all of this happening, they find original language manuscripts, 800 of them, pretty cool. Okay, all right, so now we're going to get into kind of modern translations. Okay, so we've got to, any questions? We can have questions. This is pretty relaxed, Sunday morning. Any questions? Okay, and if they are, just yell out and scream. Um, New American Standard, um, pretty big translation, 1971. Okay, and this is where, up to this point, we've been doing what they call word-by-word -word translations, word-for-word -word translations, or... Um, direct equivalence. So that means you've got a Greek or a Hebrew word, you find out what that means, and you use that word. So this word is equal to that word. Okay, word equivalence. Okay, um, and that's New American Standard. 1973, you have the New International Version, um, NIV. And the change between the difference between these two is this one is what they call a dynamic equivalent. So instead of translating a word, they look at the phrase. Okay? This is the phrase. What does it mean? And so they go phrase by phrase. So this phrase is equal to this phrase. Is it exactly the same words? The same meaning, yes, but they're not locked into having to use, because these guys are all kind of locked into having to use the word, making sure word by word is right, but for them it's phrase by phrase. Okay, um, Both of these translations have access to Dead Sea Scrolls. Kind of cool, hey? They have access to this. Like, so both of those translations have access to it. They're done by a um, large group of people, um, great scholars, from here on, you've got so much more information now. You've got all these translations, you've got all these commentaries, you've got all this history, you've got archaeology, okay? The rise of archaeology, kind of right here, 1950s, archaeology, they start discovering stuff. You've got a lot of that information. You've got a lot more information with these blue guys now than, than with previous translations. Okay, 1983, um, there is a revision of the King James, essentially taking the King James 
and modernizing the language of it, okay? Not changing the meaning, but changing the language. So they take out all the thee, thou's, and thine's, and they, they take, change that, okay? And then um, one last one we'll put up here, and there's, there's a few others as well that I'm not going to put up. 2002 English Standard Version, and essentially it's um, what they try to do is because of the difference of word, word for word, phrase for phrase, this one's kind of in between the NASB and the NIV, the English Standard Version, kind of trying to get in between those two. Okay, so um, that's essentially how we got to our Bible. Okay, uh, it's a long story, but what I want you to see is over here, especially in this time period here, you've got folks dying for God's Word. Everything that they've studied, everything they've given their life for, they're prepared to die for it. They're prepared to die for God's Word. And, and I think that's very important in terms of, remember when I said that God inspires? So kind of that's the yellow, inspiration. But the protection and, and, and keeping God's Word, God's Word, that's some of these green ones in terms of canonization. Hey, is this, is this written by New Testament authors or is this written much later? Um, this is why the Apocrypha doesn't get in, because it's written so much later. It's only authorized, uh, we're going to keep losing papers here, but it's only authorized, um, I've, it's authorized over here, okay, somewhere. Um, in 1546 at the Council of Trent, so 1546, right over here, somewhere, okay. Um, and, and those books weren't recognized. Okay. I believe the Word of God that we have today, through this whole process, I, I had a lot of fun this week. I did a lot of reading this week. And there was a lot of stuff I had to cut out. That's what I was like. <laughs> I'll get to you in a bit. <laughs> Thanks. There's a lot of stuff I had to cut out because there's so much. I mean, there's amazing stories. There's um, one, and I forget exactly where it comes in, but pretty close to Wycliffe here and these guys, um, there is a, a a king, British, English king, who doesn't have God's word in his language, but his wife, who is from Czechoslovakia, does. And so he says, guys, we need to get this into our heart language. We need to have the Bible in our heart language. Okay? So God keeps doing this. God keeps getting his word to the people. And there are people who stand up and who, who are prepared to lose their lives for his word and for the accuracy of his word. And so that's where... Um, Dead Sea Scrolls are just a beautiful thing of the Old Testament, making sure it's all accurate. They find, you can go and see all the little discrepancies that they find, and they're minor, minor, minor things. Um, but yeah, uh, people are dying for God's Word. and um, So that's what we have today. Okay, so, can I trust the NIV? Can I trust the King James? Can I trust um, all of these others? Uh, what I'd encourage you to do is, and, and that's one of the reasons I love reading on, on my tablet, is I have about six different versions, and I'll, I can read two at a time, kind of have two columns, and, and I'll flip between um, New King James, uh, NASB, NIV, you know what, I even read the message, um, because, okay, so the message, now just know the message doesn't claim to be a translation. He's not saying, hey, this is a translation, but it's it's... Kind of, and again, the, the reason why we've got to be careful of the message is seeing this translation, it's one man, okay, who goes through, and it started off as just a series for his lectures, rewriting um, the Bible for his lectures in modern day thinking and modern day um, idiom, okay, and modern day stories. So there's a lot of, I, if that's the only Bible you're reading, eh, no. But reading it as devotional material, awesome. I'd encourage you to do that. The voice is a new one. Um, I'd encourage you to read that again, but alongside your Bible, okay? Don't, if that's all you're reading, uh, buy yourself a real Bible. Um, so, and, and I think they're very clear. They don't claim to be translations, okay? So, yeah, don't put words in their mouth that they don't claim. Anyway, we've got a lot of really good stuff today, and the cool thing is you can go, um, like my, the NASB that I have, has Strong's. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Strong's, but it takes it back to the original word. They have the original word there. It says, this is what the word means. Uh, another Bible I love using is the Amplified Bible. Super hard to read in public, okay? But in your own time, 
really cool because they get to a word, and and the problem with um, the problem with our English language is that we don't have words for everything. Okay, um, so every language is like this. We have uh, words that that are, are, are unique to a language that carry meaning, and just because you translate it, they might not have that word in their language, that meaning. Okay. And so th what the Amplified does is it's, it has a word and then it has a set of brackets and then it lists like three or four things afterwards that are like synonyms or, or they're similar and they kind of help convey, they amplify that word. It's a great way of like, oh, okay, that's what that word means. You go back to Strong's and you look at the list of other words that are there. Those are the words there. So they kind of just dumped Strong's into the Bible in a way. Um, so here's, here's what I do. I spend a lot of time in the NIV. That's probably my primary Bible to read. Um, I don't think it's nearly inspired. I believe God's involved in it, okay? Um, some people call it the nearly inspired version, but, <laughs> but, but I, I, I do believe God was, and, and, and this is my premise, I believe God, and you've got like some pretty amazing scholars in all of these translations, I don't believe they're out to, to really trick us or anything like that. I believe that God is involved I mean, yeah, be careful if, if, if a revision comes out and, and, and the motive is off. Always check with the motive. What's the motive? Why did they do a new international version? They brought people from all over the English-speaking world um, so it was readable. That's the desire, that it was readable. We can get it into people's heart language. That's the desire. Okay, so I want to encourage you, read your Bibles. And I, and, and I really don't mind. If you're reading King James, New King James, American Standard, um, NASB, ESV, uh, spend time in your Bibles, okay? <laughs> Once you've got that down, then you can start arguing about what, <laughs> what version is, is, is better. Um, I don't think God's, you know, I don't think there's this kind of image of Peter standing at the gates of heaven checking if he can get into heaven. He's not going to ask, hey, which Bible version did you use? <laughs> Folks, I, I think our modern day Bibles are, are pretty accurate and, and they have a pretty clear picture of who God is, who man is, uh, they tell the bigger story, okay? Um, and we have access, and I'd encourage you, um, we have access online. There are great resources online where, where amazing scholars, you can go and read their work. You know, check who it is, and you know, if you get onto like a Mormon site, no, go back. <laughs> um, make, make sure it's a solid guy. Um, if you're not sure, shoot Jason and I an email and say, hey, is this guy solid or not? And we'll look into it as well. Um, check, check with other people. But there's a lot of amazing resources in terms of God's Word. And so I want to encourage you to read God's Word. Okay, modern-day translations. Um, we're still translating the Bible into people's heart languages. I want to tell you, um, I have a good friend. He's not that good anymore because I don't see him that often. But his name's Barry Funnel. He's a great guy, okay? <laughs> Barry's an awesome guy. Barry was naughty, though. He was really naughty when he was in college. He was running on the gym roof, fell through the roof, and is a paraplegic. So um, he's in a wheelchair, and I met Barry in Malawi and uh, spent quite a bit of time with Barry and Julia, adopted all their kids, um, and Barry would go into these villages. He was a Bible translator, okay? Barry would go into villages and get stuck with his four-wheel drive where, where us guys with legs wouldn't even dream of going. And he's like, well, there'll be lots of people. They can just carry me out. And that was just his attitude. <laughs> just wait a few days. And so Barry, I mean, this guy is just phenomenal. Anyway. He, uh, he was working with the Bible translation in Malawi, finished that translation up, and then uh, a group of folks started realizing, you know what, if we send one Westerner to go and translate a single language, it takes 10, 12, 20, 30 years, depending on how fast they work and how easy that language is. Translations, there are translations that have been going for 30 years um, and are still not complete. So uh, this group of guys got together, and, and Barry's part of this group. It's called Word for the Word, World, Word for the World, sorry, based out of the UK. And the cool thing is what they do, and, and there's lots of, um, you got Wycliffe, there's loads of SIL, loads of great Bible translations, organizations going on at the moment. But I want to share Barry's story, because I think it's pretty cool. So what they do is, um, Barry's the consultant, and they have multiples of these. What they do is they take groups of languages. Okay, so they have got one going in Tanzania. So you've got a bunch of languages in Tanzania that are less than a million people. And so they don't get 
like the big money to get a translation done in their language because, hey, there's less than a million people. Uh, let's focus on the bigger languages. So they get these groups because these languages are often related to each other. And they've actually got two translations. Barry's involved in two translations right now, or multiple two translations. One in Tanzania, we has a group of maybe six or seven languages, eight languages. I'm not sure of the details, but it's like between five and ten languages, groups that are related to each other. They come together. He meets with them. They go over like a couple books of the Bible. He tells them, you know, they read through it, make sure they get the meaning, and they're using um, original manuscripts because Barry is Greek and Hebrew fluent, but he's helping local language speakers, folks who actually speak the language. Instead of a Westerner coming to translate into someone else's language, folks who actually speak the language to translate and, and groups of people. So they have like five or ten guys who are working together to translate into their language. But then there's five or ten guys from a different language and a different language and a different language, and those languages are all related. And so when they get to a hard word, so um, God will remove our sins and wash us as white as snow. What happens if you don't have snow in your language? Like, you know, if you don't have snow, in your, if you're not used to snow, you don't have a word for snow. And so these guys had to figure out, okay, what are we going to use um, so that people can understand this concept of pure, pure whiteness. So the cool thing is, is when they, they, they grind corn there, maize, um, they do it and they get to this brilliant white powder. And so that's the, that's the term they used. Is it King James? No. <laughs> but people get the idea that because often there, that that's the cleanest thing and it's only clean for an hour or so until it's all eaten. But that's what we're trying to communicate is that God removes our sin and makes us pure and clean. Okay, so he's involved in Tanzania and he's involved in Asia with a group of languages there as well. Um, so that's some of the translations that are happening today. And there's hundreds of, I think there's like over 300 translations happening right now as we speak, probably more. Okay, so um, pretty exciting stuff. Getting God's word into the heart language. Okay, so folks, we're spoiled. We are spoiled. We have so much so many books, so many translations, so many resources in English. And some of us don't read our Bibles um, or don't spend a lot of time in our Bibles. We'll start arguing about if this word should have been a thine or thee or thou or, or, or something like that. And, and folks, I want to encourage you. God has protected his word and, and, and he has brought his word to us. We have, we are in a blessed, blessed situation in terms of having God's Word. I mean, I love it. I can, I can, like sometimes for two bucks, I can download a new version of, of, or a different version of God's Word with this, with commentaries, with that. It's pretty amazing. I, I'd encourage you guys to spend time in God's Word. Lana, you love God's Word, correct? What are you doing? Tell us real quick. So she'll send you a Bible verse. No ads, no nothing like that, correct? <laughs> so not trying to sell anything. <laughs> but, but So why I wanted you to share that is, that's pretty cool for a young lady to say, you know what, I love God's Word. And, and so have you had any stories where you're like, you, maybe you send a verse out and someone says, nah, that was just nothing. Or no, that's not, that's not the story. Do you have stories where folks go like, man, I needed that today. Amen. Awesome. Thank you. So, so folks, I, and I think that's so cool, and I wanted her to share that because, and, and there's a sign-up back there. Just put your name um, on there. Uh, it doesn't cost anything. There's no marketing, all of that. She's not going to sell the emails on to credit cards or anything. So, but, but, but the cool thing is it's like God's Word goes out, and God promises that my Word will not return empty or void. Okay. It always 
It always does something. It always changes us. And so I want to encourage you guys. Um, I know it's been long, and we're going to have to wrap this up so people can sing and see screens, but um, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are the Word. I, I love the way John opens his gospel and says, and, and, and the Word became flesh. The Word dwelt among us. And Jesus, you came so that we would so we could know God. And, and then we have these, these amazing men recording your, your words. We have your words for us um, today. Jesus, thank you just throughout history. You've protected your word. You've, you've guarded your word. And you've raised up men. When, when Jesus, we as the church have sometimes um, lost the plot and um, you know, made it all about power and, and influence and money and um, all the things that it's not about. Jesus, you've raised up um, courageous, strong, brave people to, to return us to your word. And so, Father, would we always return to your word? Would we base our lives on your word? Jesus, we want, we want to be willing to die for your word. We want to say, you know what, I base my life on this because it's true and it's real and it is your living word and it still changes lives today. Jesus, thank you for Ilana and just thank you for, for her just simple act of sending out a Bible verse. And Father, I pray that as, as we receive those, that Jesus, you would use your word to transform us today. Father, I pray that you would also um, grow and, and just ignite, set on fire a, a love for your word in our church. Jesus, that we wouldn't argue about um, which versions and all that, but Jesus, we would love your word. We would, we would read your word and allow it to to change our lives, allow it to change the way we view our community, the way we view ourselves, the way we view you. And Father, we would know that we are loved and that we have an amazing gift of salvation to share. You saved us by your grace. And we have this amazing gift to share. And we have your word to share with others. Father, we pray for um, so many men and women who are actively involved in translating your word today. We think of the Gideons who are actively just, just getting your word out to, to prisons and hotels and, and just distributing your word. Father, I pray that even this morning, someone would pick up your word and read it and fall in love with you and be, be freed from, from the slavery that, um, yeah, that sin keeps us in. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have an abundance of your word. And may our church always be centered and grounded on your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Your word is there.